0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on Earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
2: Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And this week in November of 2021, we are doing our Thanksgiving show. And Thanksgiving is a holiday unique to the United States. There is a Thanksgiving in Canada. It's not exactly the same. Um, it's one of the only times of year that we all eat almost exactly the same meal which is very unique unto itself and it's also supposed to be a time where we think about giving thanks and giving so what we like to do on tech bites is we like to focus on giving more than anything else and talk to nonprofits and people doing great things in the world that maybe need some support If you're making a special meal for friends and family, there are lots of resources. You can definitely go to heritageradionetwork.org. There's lots of stuff to listen to. And if you Google Thanksgiving dinner, I'm sure you're going to get billions and billions of hits on what to do and what to make. So we think most media has you covered in what to cook and how to set a table. Um, So we'll look at the sort of flip side of the holiday, which is really about coming together, being thankful, and building community. So talking to us today about that very subject is Edric Huang, who is the Head of Programming for Studio Atao. Edric, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. Excited to be here. And we will be spending the entire episode discussing what Studio Atao is doing with their project, The Neighborhood's Table. But before we get into that, you know, we've done so many great nonprofits on this show, uh, certainly a bunch this year, that I just wanted to take a moment, you know, if you are going into the holiday season and you are looking around for places to make a gift and make a contribution and sort of give a gift that keeps on giving, Um, These are some really great episodes for you. I think one in in recent mind, um, one of them that is great is episode 220 called Spicy Green Book. And it's a nonprofit based out of L.A. that happened that came to life during the pandemic. And it is a free service and resource for black owned restaurants to find a uh, creative team to help them put a brand listing onto a website of restaurants and a restaurant directory to sort of give them a higher profile and better access. It's a really interesting project. It's also a project where if you're a creative person, writer, photographer, editor, digital designer, programmer, um, this is also a place where you can give your time. So I love this episode, 220. I love this nonprofit, Spicy Green Book. That's definitely something worth taking a look at. Um, We also did a great episode 217 on a company called Toast Ale, and it's essentially a British-based company that has beer that is uh, a nonprofit and gives money and gives money back. And in some instances does collaborations with bakeries and upcycles leftover bread into beer, toast, ale. So it's a great idea, and it's also... Um, you know, a lot of people are going to be, you know, stocking their refrigerators with beverages for parties and get togethers So that's a really nice way to both cheers to something in the holidays and also, you know, cheers to giving back. But I do think that my favorite, favorite nonprofit from this year so far is the Barrio Fridge. And that is um, in New York City. It's up in Harlem. It is two friends who started a free community refrigerator during the pandemic. They've um, started a second one. They've developed an app, uh, the Barrio Fridge. You can find it in the App Store. And, you know, we have really did see an increase in the numbers of community refrigerators across New York City and across the country during the pandemic, um, when people were sheltering in place, when some shops were closed, when you know, our food supply chain was really being disrupted and people needed help. If you don't know what a community fridge is, it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a plugged in refrigerator somewhere in your neighborhood or somewhere on a neighborhood block. And it is essentially great food, stocked, free for the taking. So anyone who needs it can go and open it up and and take what they need. And likewise, people who have things to contribute or donate. People, companies, businesses can make donations and help support the neighborhood. It's very... It's very sort of low-key in a way. It's not show up someplace at a specific time. It's not walking through something administrative or bureaucratic or a service. Um, It's literally a refrigerator on your block that might have something you might need um, at any given point in time. So especially this time of year when we think about food and we think about sitting down together and eating with friends and family, um, the Barrio Fridge, I think, is probably my top favorite nonprofit giving space right now. Um, Edric, I know you work at a nonprofit so your whole life is giving to nonprofit. <laughs> but are there other projects and things that you gravitate towards or things that you want to shout out to support at this time of year? Maybe other projects in your community or projects friends are working on or you know something that that you gravitate towards? Yeah,
3: for sure. Thanks so much for the question. I think I've been working in hospitality for a while and have a lot of connections in that space. And so my heart goes there first. Uh, I actually sit for full transparency on the junior board of the Food Education Fund, which is also based in New York City. And they are a nonprofit that helps culinary minded and focused uh, youth to find careers in that space. And so they do really incredible work between kind of sending fellows to competitions internationally. They have a really incredible publication called Pass the Spatula, which is entirely student run and has fellows writing, editing, taking photos, Um, and it's just a really incredible organization that works across three high schools in in New York City, um, to really make sure that fellows who want to enter the culinary space in varied ways have those opportunities. So I would definitely encourage checking them out, but, uh, I'm also a huge fan of just, you know, grassroots, um, off efforts that are really supporting marginalized communities or communities that haven't always gotten the most attention. And so two other organizations I would shout out are Heart of Dinner, which is based in Chinatown.
2: I love Heart of Dinner. Yeah, I have their. I have their awesome uh, persimmon tote bag.
3: I have the other one. I have the bok choy <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, they're incredible. I mean, they've gotten so much well-deserved recognition this past year, um, and have really been doing incredible work across the board. Uh, and also, there's a really new organization called Auxilio Space. Um, which is another nonprofit that's based in creating community-based food center spaces and resources and support for queer, trans, and indigenous communities of color across New York City. They're really just getting off the ground. And so I think they're also fundraising to really begin their operations and kind of take it to the next level. Um, But I think finding these kind of safer and safe spaces for these marginalized communities is really important. And I think with especially during this time of giving, it's so crucial to make sure that we have them in mind. Um, So I shout out those orgs uh, as a starting place as well.
2: Well, we are huge fans of the Food and Finance High School here on Tech Bytes. And if you look back in the archives, we've done lots and lots of shows um, with the students and with some of the leadership at the school starting, I think the first episode we did had to have been maybe four or five years ago, even. Um, There's a uh, after-school radio program that we did where teaching kids to make podcasts and tell their own stories, you know, through the podcast and audio format. And so we had some of the students come on and talk about their experience there and the stories that we were sharing. And also uh, last year during the pandemic, we had some um, episodes with Food and Finance High School. They did a, an amazing, amazing job of keeping their community together, doing virtual learning online. Um, raising funds and providing, you know, food and resources for many of the students and their families. And we had um, a few of the students do a takeover episode where they talked about their virtual graduation, which was great also. So huge fan, huge fan of um, food and finance high school as well. So today we are going to talk about Studio Atau, who actually in a slightly different incarnation has been on the show long, long time ago, episode 159. It was an episode around virtual dining um, and just a completely different idea about, you know, creating a new type of dining experience and integrating different types of technology with the tactile um, dining experience. But before we get into the specificity of the neighborhoods table fundraiser, explain to us briefly what Studio Atau is as a nonprofit an organization today, and what types of you know projects and things you all are working on and putting into the world.
3: For sure. So Studio Tau is a nonprofit that creates educational tools, resources, and spaces for individuals and organizations to advance systems-based social change. And so what that means in practice is that we're organizing small focus groups and conversation spaces, town halls, and other community discussion spaces for people to build relationships with one another and learn more from one another about what social justice even is. And then based on a lot of those conversations and what we learned, we put out educational resources on topics like the scarcity mindset and how it affects BIPOC in their daily lives to combating tokenization in food media. And so we do all of this through a social justice lens and by centering recommendations from those who are often most marginalized and most often not included in these conversations and decision-making, with decision-making power. And so as you probably know, Jennifer, we started back in 2018 under our fearless leader, Jenny Dorsey, uh, who has continued and constantly thought a lot about the relationship between food and identity and vulnerability. And so that's really where we started a lot of our work. Um, and so a lot of our work, you know, still spans the hospitality and food space. For the past two years, you've been working on a project with food media publications, and how do we really make sure that the content of That food media is putting out is equitable and does really reflect the diversity of the food spaces in the states, but also around the world. Um, But also, we've gone beyond that. We've released educational resources on our website on things like immigration law and policing, and really kind of thinking intersectionally and also expansively about how all these systems and all the structures that kind of define you know, our worlds right now are related to one another. And so we're really interested in putting together, you know, different groups of people so that they can talk to one another, learn from one another, and really make sure that everyone can feel empowered to be involved in the change process.
2: That is a very, very dense uh, explanation with a lot, a lot of things I would love to uh, go back to and have you articulate a little bit further just so we can have a good understanding, you know, so much of what you uh, mentioned in terms of the observation of what's happening right now in the food, food media, hospitality landscape, um, what's happening combined with how you discuss that and maybe change that, it's very complex I think, as yeah. as we all know, I mean, none of these things are simple. Looking at it through the lens specifically of hospitality makes it even more complex because food is essential to life. <laughs> food is essential to life, just on a on a human uh, biophysics level. You need food to live, but also food is one of the most personal things that there is in the world. You know, we started off the show talking about Thanksgiving and how in the United States, Thanksgiving is going to be the one meal really in the country where people are eating a very, very similar menu, um, which never, almost never, ever happens. Food is so personal because it is wrapped up so much in your personal experience in your family, your personal experience in your neighborhood, your personal experience in, in, in where you come from, your personal experience in terms of your economics and what foods are available to you. And do you cook or not cook? Are you an athlete? What's your food profile? What do you want? You know, how do you view food? Um, it, it, it's so personal that it's, it's almost difficult to, um, talk about it, you know, kind of generically or universally. But restaurants and hospitality people are really sort of the gatekeepers and the drivers of that, especially in our communities. Um, and how restaurants and hospitality people wind up in our communities is a very interesting question, and I, or not question, but a very interesting path and story to follow, which I think is a part of your neighborhood table project
3: exactly yeah you know i think food is so personal and food affects us in so many different ways on surviving and thriving and making sure that we have the resources to even you know, do things that we do every day. But I think food also is an opportunity to bring people together. And I think when we think at the core of hospitality, right, it's about gathering, it's about welcoming, and it's about nurturing. And for us, when we think about, you know, communities and restaurants entering those communities, I think a lot of the time we enter this conversation around gentrification right, which is complex and loaded, and there's so much that goes into that one word, oftentimes because we lack any kind of definition for this really complex topic that involves so many structural forces. And I think a lot of restaurants and coffee shops get a lot of slack because I think people see them as oftentimes the first signs of gentrification, right? They kind of say, oh, that hip new restaurant is entering the space. Oh, this neighborhood's going to change right away. And for us, you know, I think we believe that that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. I think we've entered into a mindset culturally where we believe that, you know, displacement is the ultimate endpoint no matter what we do. And for us, we want to invest in people. We want to believe that, you know, we can collaborate toward a better solution for everyone involved. And so the Neighborhoods Table is an initiative that Studio Tao is starting off now uh, and into 2022 that aims to create a Actionable and a replicable guide, essentially, for hospitality businesses to organically connect with their neighbors and combat displacement and actually invest in their neighborhoods to feel like they can be a part of it, to feel like they can actually contribute to the fabric of these neighborhoods rather than alienate the people who've been there the longest. And so we're thinking a lot about, you know, what does what are the roots of hospitality, right? How can we turn restaurants and coffee shops and other and bars into sites of community care to kind of say that, yeah, these can be places where people can come together, to be activated politically, to be, to say that they have a stake in their own community, whether or not that restaurant's new or old, but actually to create, to generate power from community organizers and from hospitality business owners themselves.
2: So when we talk about Gentrification for this conversation and this episode, specific to the neighborhoods table, you're specifically looking at essentially urban gentrification. It's not really gentrification sort of in a suburban or rural kind of sense. Um, It sounds like we're talking about a neighborhood that has a specific economic, social, and cultural profile that then starts to change when new businesses and new residents come in that are different from the existing profile or makeup or whatever a nice generic word is to use to describe that.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think one of the main issues is that no one really knows what gentrification is or no one talks about it in a productive manner because there's so many different definitions. I think a lot of definitions of gentrification come from different needs and different vantage points. For example, you know, some people uh, immediately associate gentrification with displacement. Other people are framing it more in terms of replacement, right? Kind of, as you mentioned, those wealthier oftentimes people moving into new spaces that they previously didn't exist and replacing the people who are there and therefore limiting the access that older residents might have had to some of those resources. Other people think of it as, you know, Um, a place that once experienced disinvestment, suddenly receiving investment... But that's aimed at once again attracting and serving those more affluent people rather than serving those existing residents. Um, some people think of the cultural displacement, right the loss of a sense of place, the loss of a sense of you know comfort in the ways that you are existing and it's hard to kind of wrap all those things in one definition you know it's hard to kind of say this is gentrification um, but I think a lot about you know one a quote from Sarah Schulman, who's a queer activist and she's a a historian and a novelist and she says that you know there's a lot of privilege in being able to forget what a place used to be right i think she says something like gentrification replaces people's experiences with the perceptions of the privilege and calls that reality um and i think for us like whether it's economically whether it's culturally whether it's politically it's this sense of change that i think takes away the agency for certain people to really feel like they can do something about it or that they that they can you know not feel like they're up against this inevitable force um, that is kind of entering and sweeping away what they used to know as a home.
2: One of the drivers of change in neighborhoods anywhere is certainly real estate and finances. So the people who own real estate, who own the leases, who set the rents, who rent and, you know, who purchase space to build businesses, to, you know, build housing, to, you know, give leases to tenants and things like that. That's sort of almost one of the, that's almost one of the very, very first drivers. And, you know, in some instances that happens on a very, very small scale. Maybe you have a family that, you know, owns the brownstone that they live in or the small building that they live in, that they have a business in that's been in their family. One thing that I noticed, you know, Specifically, after, you know, 2020 and when we're really experiencing economic distress in a lot of communities, specifically in retail and in hospitality in New York, many of the small businesses that were in neighborhoods that are in neighborhoods that have been around for decades, you know, there's, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, um, there's a wonderful, um, Greek bakery in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan, which has been there for decades. And it's great. And you know, it's been there forever. And so I walked up there one day in 2020 with a friend, was happy to see that they were still open, bought some pastries and things and talked to the person behind the counter and said, Oh, I'm so happy to see you still here. um, Because so many places closed. And he said, Yes, we own the building. That, you know, his grandparents, I think he had said, had purchased the building years ago, and it's a family business generationally. So property and ownership and, and you know, being able to set your your rent or your prices, that's almost like the first, from my, you know, experience in, in reading and, and looking at this in, online and, you know, in the very, very immediate um, view of, you know, post-2020 – does, do you, do you think that the economics of that are the first stage and the people who are driving real estate decisions, who are setting um, rental rates for retail businesses and things like that are, you know, these people thinking about community, is it just an economic transaction? You know, I think about small business owners, hospitality owners, Um, people who are going to open a store, a bakery or a restaurant for the first time, maybe they're getting some money together with friends and family and they're looking for opportunity. And sometimes opportunity is based simply on where in the city is the rent I can afford.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a loaded and a huge question and a really great one as well. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, because restaurants, and because coffee shops oftentimes are the face of the gentrification, they are given the most blame in the entire process for getting everything that you just mentioned, right? They are opening their businesses in certain areas because of rising rents or also because of certain incentives that are given to them, whether that be through developers or whether that be through the government as well. I think we sometimes forget to remember that there are all these structural forces really compelling gentrification to happen, right? I think also a lot of people like, you know, Um, the reason why, you know, we've also focused this project a lot on retail is because individuals are oftentimes also a victim of this, right? They are just searching for a place to live and they are just trying to find a place to plant roots as well. And so when we think about the economics of it all, I definitely agree that, you know, there's a huge, there's a huge role that developers and landlords and owners play in all of this. And for us, I think there's two ways that we're currently thinking about this. The first is, as you mentioned with the Greek bakery, right, what are some creative and alternative ways that we can think about how real estate plays into the way that the hospitality business is able to operate? I think it goes without saying that rents are absurd in a city like New York City. And so how do we kind of work around that by also building different kind of organizational structures, by really empowering people to think about real estate and leases in different ways. And there's a couple of different models that already exist for example, whether that's you know coming together either as a family, if you've been around for long enough, or as a coalition and kind of buying a building together and kind of saying, this is our space, right? There are land tr- community land trusts out there, which are mission-driven nonprofits that essentially acquire land either through direct purchase or donation and hold the land intentionally for the benefit of the, cu- of the current or future community. There are shared equity models that have worked in the past. There are community development corporations or public development authorities that are around specifically to really think Critically about how do we really preserve these spaces so that low income residents can still benefit, right? I think uh, a lot of the time we assume that you know older residents are not happy with revitalization, are not happy with you know better things coming into neighborhoods, whether that be just like grocery stores in areas where food apartheid is real. Um, but they do, of course, want those things, but they want access to those things as well. And so for us, you know, we are thinking a lot about. Real estate is obviously going to be an equation, and there are some creative models that we can work against, uh, work around and with it. But also, how do we kind of build power so that we remember that developers are not, you know, the end-all be-all when it comes to real estate? I think we were talking to one of our advisors, and they reminded us that, you know, yeah, developers hold that capital and they hold the land, but they also need businesses to come in and bring energy into the space to bring people to the land and to create these destination spots and so businesses are also have leverage in that kind of equation But I think the the question and what we're trying to really reach through this initiative is to say, how can we build power amongst hospitality business owners and community organizers who are thinking about these issues and can actually speak back to developers or kind of make demands of developers or kind of say, hey, these are things that are going to benefit us so that we can continuously, you know, invest in the community and make sure this is a livable place. And so that's also part of our initiative where we do want to have business owners and community organizers come together, build that power, get to know one another, create coalitions, and then bring in some of these owners and landlords and developers, some of whom are, you know, nonprofit developers and who kind of get what we are doing um, and have those kinds of conversations because I think so many times they aren't happening um, because either the power dynamic's off, the kind of, the room is just not ready to have some of that. And for us, you know, we want to work with communities, listen to them, and be able to build that power toward a better future?
2: Well, listening to communities and building conversations and spaces for conversations and empowerment through voice is certainly something we've been doing here at Heritage Radio Network for more than a decade. Um, We're also a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we Keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, who are many of them listeners like you all today. Grants and underwriters like this one. Stay with us and we'll find out who is helping
1: sponsor this conversation. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our Heritage and Traditions, Master Cheesemaker Program, and the American Propensity for Innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, Get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
2: You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today is actually our Thanksgiving episode. It is November of 2021, and we are coming into the holiday season. And there is a lot of information on heritageradionetwork.org episodes. There's a lot of media about what to cook, what to eat, how to make a great table, but here at Tech Bytes, we like to talk about giving. We like to put the giving into Thanksgiving and look at nonprofits making an impact in this space. Um, you know, sometimes if you want to make a gift or, you know, make a contribution, giving a gift to a nonprofit is like the gift that keeps on giving. If you love Heritage Radio Network and believe that we need to have a space for conversations like this one and conversations about everything fermentation cheese, farms, school lunch, food history. Maybe think about becoming a member of Heritage Radio Network. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click the beating heart. It says support HRN and maybe become a member of our secret menu. If you become a regular monthly donor at any dollar amount, you will have access to our very, very special secret menu for regulars only, which is basically discounts and offers from some of our favorite food and beverage people. And you know what? It's the perfect time for this because holidays are coming. Maybe you need some new things. It's also the perfect gift for that foodie or newsie or person in your life who has everything. I promise you they don't have this. So um, when you think about the giving season, think about giving to Heritage Radio Network. Um, We have been here for more than 10 years and we'd like to be here for another 10 but today the nonprofit that we're talking about is Studio Atau and their initiative the neighborhoods table they are currently fundraising twenty thousand dollars at givebutter.com backslash the neighborhoods table fundraiser we're talking with Edric Huang, who is the head of programming at studio Atau about this initiative, which essentially centers around creating a framework and a space and some tools for communities and businesses to talk about how new businesses can integrate into communities without, with the least amount of friction, with the most amount of involvement and benefit, sort of working with the idea that gentrification not quite sure what that is, but it never really seems to be good. <laughs> I mean, is that is that true, Edric? Do you think that whenever we say the word gentrification, the sort of top line flash definition is um, money, com- more money coming into a community that has less money, and then the more money coming in and the people coming in with the more money sort of push out the people with the less money, and then the... Style uh, feeling social culture aspects of the community then change from the original to the new, and for whatever reason um, and you know there are reasons and, and examples throughout history, no one really perceives that as a positive thing. <laughs>
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think just that sentence that you just said sums it up, right? It just keeps <laughs> on going and involves so many things. And it's kind of impossible to really pinpoint down. But yeah, I would say that, you know, the word gentrification tends to always connotate negatively. I think a lot of people tend to associate it with a lot of loss and a lot of You know, whether that's through the displacement, whether that's through the cultural loss, whether that's through the alienation, right? And of course, you know, the the economic losses that people are facing if they have to shut down their business and move somewhere else. But I think for us, you know, um, uh, P.E. Moskowitz, who writes the book How to Kill a City, essentially says that, you know, to fight gentrification is to fight American thinking. And it's quite a large, you know, call to say that. Anyone can do anything about gentrification when it's literally kind of what the country was really built upon. And for us, you know, we are realists in the sense that we do not purport to change gentrification anytime soon. But I think what we do want to believe is that, you know, a neighborhood can improve. A neighborhood can revitalize in a way that still involves the people who lived there the longest, who have been there and planted their roots there. And I think that for too long, you know, we too often associate gentrification and revitalization and neighborhood improvement all negatively because we tend to associate with an image of, you know, the white hipster entering to Brooklyn or whatever it may be. But we don't think it has to be that way. And rather than kind of accept that upfront, kind of question, you know, what are actually those forces that you alluded to earlier that lead to gentrification and say, how can we make sure that people of lower income, people who are of diverse backgrounds can find spaces that they belong in, that they feel comfortable in, and that there are actually diverse cityscapes that can exist?
2: One of the things we talked about um, prior to the show, you know, when we think about the evolution or change of a community or a neighborhood um, with you know through the lens of more money coming into a neighborhood and then changing the landscape of it economically. And then with that economic increase comes a different profile of people and businesses and commerce and things like that. What really comes to mind to me in New York is Soho which is a neighborhood that has gone through many different types of, um, residents, business, retail community, it's known as, you know, sort of the birthplace and artistic and photographers and a little gritty and the loft spaces. And so many, um, celebrated artists and musicians and photographers and fashion and food, you know, came out of Soho and the neighborhood still has that legacy And you see the evolution of, you know, actual art galleries and businesses and then boutiques and unique types of boutiques and small businesses and then maybe brands that we're more familiar with and then bigger brands and bigger brands. And now if you go to Soho, it's, um, you know, I think the, the terminology is the mauling of America, where most of the stores that you see in Soho are global multinational brands that you can find in any shopping mall, in any city in the world, you know, your high-end retail, your Prada, your Louis Vuitton, um, you know, Crocs, all those types of things, your drugstores, your Starbucks, all of that. And so it's sort of, while it's in this beautiful, you know, cobblestone, still small building, New York neighborhood, you know, the landscape is very much just generic global retail. Now, you know, certainly there is a progression of different types of people and businesses that were displaced. Is that sort of global, that multinational gentrification? Is that sort of like the final last one where it sort of obliterates everything? (laughs) (laughs) And then it all just becomes generic? I mean, you walk through the streets in Soho, you could be in just any, like pick any top, you know, pick any big city in the world. You could easily be in you know, Rome or Paris or, you know, Shanghai or, you know, Barcelona or, you know, Rio or any any place.
3: Yeah, I mean, on Soho, there's a great book written by one of my professors from undergrad, Aaron Shiketa, Um, called The Lofts of Soho, if anyone is interested and, you know, thinking more about the transition from, you know, Soho as that kind of like gritty art loft space into what it is today and kind of how it got there. Um, So I'll just plug that quickly. But yeah, I think that, you know, there's a Soho, you know, might be a good example. It might also be, you know, something to look at and maybe feel a sense of fear. (laughs) I think there's a even within the mauling of America, but also within the creation of what a lot of people call, you know, these third spaces, these kind of really generic Instagrammable places that don't really build in a character or personality, but have all the things you would expect to see on Instagram, you know, like plants, white walls, like light wood tables, which I feel like everyone kind of immediately knows what I'm talking about as soon as I identify some of those really basic qualities. Um, I think the fear is that we lose a lot of the things that, made these places what these places were right and i think a lot of that also comes from the fact that it's a it's a kind of leveling of leveling of the world right gentrifiers oftentimes come into i don't want to like label everyone you know but i think that the mindset that a lot of um kind of gentrifiers come in with especially if they don't know very much about a city or if they're kind of just following you know landlords and owners and the way they kind of advertise this particular building is that it's through fresh eyes right? There is no mental map there. There is no, you know, there's no existing presence. It's all about this kind of manifest destiny, you know, kind of model. And, oftentimes that leads to, you know, what we see right now, right? This leveling of the past to a leveled future where there is no longer any association with what previously existed or what was previously there. And so there is this kind of like loss, I would even say, you know, a mourning to a certain extent that's happening in places like New York or like New Orleans or other cities that are experiencing deep forms of gentrification. Um, And it's quite sad, you know, to see the fabric of what we see in other neighborhoods right now slowly kind of like whittling away and so for us you know I think it's really important to think about how do we kind of mitigate that process and also one open question that we're thinking a lot about is when can we mitigate in that process right and so for us the neighborhoods table we're thinking critically about you know the early stages so much before any kind of Soho which I think most people would argue is long gone Um, but and in the early phases where there can still be movement, there can still be action, there can still be that kind of community investment happening before we get the luxury brands and those kind of like blockbuster or those huge developers who own, you know, I don't know, like 30 to 50% of New York City before they kind of enter in these neighborhoods and kind of take it over. And so I think it's really making sure that it's early enough and in the long, long process of gentrification That we can feel like there is change possible, and it doesn't feel like this huge, you know, thing looming over us.
2: How critical is this project at this point in time, given just the economic and survival issues that hospitality and restaurants have had um, between 2020 and 2021? There are so many. Um, communities losing their small businesses across the board, um, you know, dry cleaners, you know, nail salons, um, little boutiques, you know, and certainly restaurants have been very hard hit during the pandemic in terms of um, not being able to survive and closing and things like that. And we've, we've talked so much on this show, on this network, we, everyone has read, you know, in the media and, and heard, how much the restaurant industry and the hospitality industry really is an integral part of the fabric of a community and how they've just been decimated and you know 30% of them have closed and they're gone and so is that moment in time also a critical piece of the gentrification just because we're in an economic environment right now where there are so many closed spaces. There are so many empty storefronts. Um, in you know, I live in um, downtown Manhattan, in Chelsea. There are things that are still boarded up with plywood that never reopened. There are things that have been closed and empty um, for the past 18 months and some things that even predate that. So yeah. we're also in a situation where existing, even without some larger scale formalized idea of we're going to start to develop and build in this neighborhood. Um, even on a smaller scale, you know, sort of natural triage, there's a lot of empty spaces right now that need to be filled. And, and who, who is going to fill them, I think, is, is an important question. Who can afford to Exactly. Who's still here, who's still in the city, who didn't leave, (laughs) who can afford to go into the space, who wants to take the risk, who wants to take the risk right now of opening a coffee shop or a food place or a restaurant in this economic environment, in this employment environment, um, and in this environment of, you know, third party delivery, you know, apps, Grubhub and things like that. I mean, so many places are closing because they can't survive you know who who are the people who are coming in who think they they could make a go of it i mean it's a it's um the gentrification issue question topic has been on the table for decades in terms of community awareness activism and all those things but now it's a it's a very uh there's a very different element at work here
3: yeah i think it's is related to so many of those things, right? You think like the delivery app question is huge and I think so involved. And I know you had also really great episodes on ghost kitchens and kind of that whole issue as well. But on the note of, you know, the pandemic and how we can come out of it, I think if we learned anything from the pandemic and hopefully people are still holding on to this and it also encouraged this to be something maybe people consider donating to in the giving season are just the mutual aid efforts that have really continued to pop up, whether that's through, you know, the fridges, whether that's through other means. Um, But if we learned anything, um, especially, you know, yes, we have a, a new administration and I think that people had a lot of optimism when everything started. But we still need community and we still need to rely on one another as we move through the motions and we move through these next couple of months, years, decades. Right. And I think if we learned anything, it's that there needs to be a lot more community collaboration in order to create the spaces and build the spaces that are necessary for those boarded up streets to not become the next Soho. And whether that, and I think that collaboration needs to be, you know, a concerted effort between hospitality owners for sure, but for sure, you know, the small business owners, those mom and pop shops that you mentioned earlier, who don't always have the opportunity to bring their voice to the table. I think it's also talking to hospitality laborers, right? I think there's just so many radical efforts that have come out in the last year and a half from people who worked in restaurants who were just really fed up with a lot of the systems, Um As well as, you know, community and kind of like having these groups of people talk to one another and present their concerns and find out, you know, what are really interesting and good ways that we can build up, you know, these spaces to be sites of care, to be places that are manageable, to be places that are not, you know, constantly running on the thin then profit margins they're always working on. Um, And I think this delves into a lot of conversations around, you know, like worker ownership, for example, and co-ops, and how do we build better models of civic engagement and civic awareness amongst the people who are working and who are uh, patronizing hospitality businesses so that we can all be activated in the same way and feel like there is a similar direction that we move into. I think too often, you know, something that we're also hoping to bridge is that not only our hospitality businesses just seen sometimes as the harbingers or the signs of gentrification, but other times, you know, they're just kind of sites of, you know, leisure. They're kind of, no one oftentimes think of them in their political capacity or potential. And we want to really lead into that because there's really cool people doing that kind of work across the U.S. that I think we're up, hoping to uplift, that we're involving in this process, that we want to kind of, you know, recognized for that kind of work and share those strategies across the board so that it's no longer just an exception to the restaurants, but actually something that restaurants are thinking intentionally about, whether it's their in within their opening or whether that's through, you know, early stages. And that could be as simple as, you know, multilingual menus for community for their opening communities where people are not speaking English all the time. That can also mean worker ownership and kind of like going through the motions to really support the, their co their uh, direct reports or their colleagues and their co-workers to create that process and there's also incredible nonprofits that are ready to do that kind of work like project equity that people can lean on and we want to resource and kind of share um and then kind of going back to you know the earlier conversation on real estate you know how can hospitality businesses work with community organizers and residents to buy back their buildings potentially as a solution against you know the real estate board and the real estate you know kind of Thing like, looms over all of us <laughs> constantly, um, and people are doing that kind of work. Uh, like one of our advice, or one of our um, other people who are supporting us with our project that we've talked to, for example, Reem Asil, who's based in SF, has done really cool work at Reem's um, in terms of like specifically engaging her employees and really thinking critically about how can this be more than just a restaurant, and how can we use this space as more than just you know the standard restaurant. Um, fine dining or casual dining model, and thinking about how do we insert life into that process and really say that this this is what the future of hospitality can look like if we all commit to it and come together for it.
2: Well, sometimes thinking about these enormous intertwined complex issues can really be overwhelming. And I think we've all been living through the past oh, 18 months coming into two years now of recognizing and living within a lot of really complex, overwhelming issues and problems that have come home um, for all of us individually in our homes, in our jobs, in our communities, um, in ways that are very real and in ways that we might have never imagined. And certainly it's been a time where I think people are focused on um personal survival for myself, for my family, and then the people around me, and then maybe my job or, you know, the gym or my martial arts club or my, you know, store or my coffee shop that I like. And, you know, we take the personal and then we sort of move out in concentric circles to the things that touch our lives that are important to us. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Sometimes we can recognize that something needs to be fixed Something that's not working well, um, but then it's just how do you even how do you even start working on that? And sometimes even trying to figure out a way to make something better is overwhelming because it's just too big sometimes, or it seems to be. Um, and as always, um, you know, they many, many people. It's a little bit of a cliche. You say it in the art world. You say it in the you know public service world and things like that. Well, the idea of making something so personal. It becomes universal, um, you know. Sort of starting here, you know, starting home, and then going out from there. So, as I said at the top of the show, this is our Thanksgiving episode. We want to put the giving into Thanksgiving. Um, it's a great time of year to uh, share your own personal, um, your own personal success, your own personal. Um, Community, gratitude, all those things um, with the people around you and also maybe, you know, some people who aren't necessarily around you. I mean, if you live in a city like New York, you're impacted by everybody who lives in the five boroughs, you know, all, what is it, 8, 10 million of us? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, believe it or not, you know, if you live in Queens, you could be very well impacted by a neighborhood in Staten Island. And if you live in the Bronx, you could very well be impacted by something that's happening in a neighborhood in Chelsea. So um, we are all connected. So I want to thank uh, Edric Huang, the head of programming for Studio Atao, um, to come on the show to talk about their Neighborhoods Table project. If you want to check out Studio Atao, um, some of the resources, toolkits and events and things that they have, visit them online, atao.org. Org? It's a nonprofit. You want to follow them on social media, they are at Studio Atao. If you want to take a look at the fundraiser and maybe make a contribution, they are fundraising on the website givebutter.com backslash the Neighborhoods Table Fundraiser. Um, you know, There are so many opportunities right now. And again, as I said on the top of the show, we've done some episodes with founders of some great nonprofits. We have episode 245, The Forge Project, which is a fantastic um, indigenous American project for supporting artists, leaders, research, education, education that just launched this year. We have The Barrio Fridge, one of my personal favorites, episode 235. Episode 232, With Warm Welcome. um, Edric, this is probably one you know. It is Asian-American hospitality-based nonprofit group coming together, doing things, fundraising, sharing experience. Um, That's a great episode also. Spicy Green Book, episode 220. It's a nonprofit guidebook for Black-owned restaurants. Um, And that's a great example of, you know, if you have time, you can give services. Um, Edric mentioned um, Heart of Dinner, which is a fantastic group um, in Manhattan. They're looking for volunteers all the time. People to drive cars, to deliver meals, people to... One of the things that they do that's so charming is they do handwritten letters and notes and cards that go in with the dinners. And they're beautiful. So... Giving is not always about money. Sometimes giving is about just intention, time, and energy. Um, And of course, the most important, heritageradionetwork.org. Think about if you really enjoyed this show and you liked it and you're going to send it along to someone and you're going to listen to more, you think these conversations are important to have to save. heritageradionetwork.org. Click the beating heart. Whatever... You can share with us. We would love to have it. We'll take it and we'll use it to make more radio. I want to thank Edric Huang for joining us today. Thank the entire team at Heritage Radio Network. And most importantly, thank all of our listeners, um, because you're the most important ingredient in the whole recipe. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi, and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.